friends, let's uh, commit our time together to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that out of every nation, out of every tribe, every language, every tongue, you are gathering a people for yourself. That risen from the dead, the King of the Jews is no longer the King of the Jews only, but the Christ of the whole world. Father, we thank you that in these days, in these last days, your word remains forever. And that as we hear your word first given to the Jews, but then for all of us, we pray that you would give us so to understand, so to believe, and so to be transformed by your spirit, that in all things we might live for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this book, uh, Ruth, and uh, we've been exploring the theme of kindness. What does life look like under the sun when people live according to God's word, according to his law? Uh, as we've uh, talked about over the last couple of weeks, there are no prophets in this book. God does not speak. There are no promises in the book of what God will do. There are no shadows of Jesus in the book that we might look and see, well, there's a forward expectation looking forward to the Christ. And that kind of comes home to roost in this chapter, particularly as we hear the word redeem and redemption mentioned quite a lot. It can be easy for us to say, well, okay, there's a redeemer there, and well, Jesus is a redeemer, and therefore there must be some association. Not so. The similarities that Boaz and Jesus might have is that they both live according to the law. They both live lives that are obedient to God. As we read a passage like this, again, uh, it can be tempting to read it as a romance novel. And uh, there are a lot of people that have read it as a romance novel. And here is the climax of the love being uh, expressed between Ruth and Boaz and, oh, there's a complication and will their love be consummated as they are married? They might have loved each other in the romantic sense. But what this passage emphasises is not that, but it's their love for one another in obedience to the Lord. They live a life of covenant fidelity and express kindness to one another in light of that. As we come to a passage like this, then it's important that we understand the context and the background. These are people trying to live life under the sun, and in a sense, there's a degree of absence of God in this passage. He doesn't speak, he doesn't promise, he doesn't intervene directly, apparently, but these are people seeking to live lives obedient to him nonetheless. Now next week we'll see the way in which God has ordered the events and the way in which this book points towards the Christ. But here in this week, we need to read this passage, not in the context of romantic love, not in the context of uh, what shadows might or might not be there, but we need to read it in the context of the law of the background of the first five books of the Bible and the book of Judges. 
as we come to a passage like this, there are certain customs that come out or things that are expressed that unless we have our Old Testament ears on, we won't really understand properly. Not least of which is the nature of redemption itself. What is going on in this passage when he talks about being a kinsman or guardian redeemer? As we heard a couple of weeks ago, there is a system in place that God gives for names to be perpetuated throughout generations. If a brother marries a woman and that brother dies, then it's up to that brother's siblings to marry that woman instead, have a child in his brother's name, and that, that child will take on the deceased brother's uh, name and perpetuate the name throughout generations. You might recall that that's the case when Jesus is interrogated by the Sadducees about the resurrection. He talks about the woman who uh, marries a man and then he dies and then the next brother steps up and then after seven of them die, she also dies. Somewhat exhausted, I imagine. In Deuteronomy 25, God states clearly these words. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside to the family of a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is what Ruth claims of Boaz. And this is what Boaz seeks to fulfill. And yet there's another redeemer who's also involved, a closer relation, who has to decide whether or not he will um, fulfill those things. But it's not just the issue about a name of family lineage being passed from generation to generation. As you see in the incident at the gate, which is where business was conducted in ancient times and villages, witnesses would gather together the elders and they'd witness the business transaction and then uh, the sandal, a bit bizarre to our ears, but nevertheless, a sandal would be exchanged as proof or evidence that business had taken place. And the witnesses would be able to testify to the business that had taken place. They don't have receipts, they don't have invoices, they don't have written contracts as such in village life. Nevertheless, they have a system and means to make sure that covenants, business transactions, are witnessed and held accountable to. But what happens if the person doesn't want to honour this lineage, this having a son uh, in the brother's name? Well, the exchange of the sandals still takes place, except it's one of shame rather than one of covenant. In Deuteronomy 25, we're told that if the man doesn't fulfill his obligation, the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my brother refuses to perpetuate the brother's name in Israel. He shall not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call the man, and if he persists, saying, I don't want her, then the wife shall go up in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off, rather than just receive the sandal. More than that, 
she'll spit in his face. There is an exchange, there is a transaction, and it's one of shame. And the man shall henceforth be known as the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Not much of an insult in our ears, but there is a degree of shame that goes around with it. God takes this seriously. As you might have heard in 1 Thessalonians that reading, God takes how we treat our sexuality very seriously and our responsibilities to one another very seriously and that we don't wrong one another or take advantage of one another. But as I say, it's not just uh, going out into uh, the, the perpetuating the name on behalf of the deceased brother throughout generations, but it's also tied up with the idea of land. If you've read the book of Joshua, you'll know just how tightly a person's name, who they belong to, their family, their clan, their tribe, their nation, is bound up with a particular allotment of land within Israel. God allows in, number, uh, in Leviticus 25 for land to be sold. If a person is poor, they're allowed to sell their land to another person and they usually take on the life of a servant of that landowner. And we see that Boaz is likely one of those people. He's a man of standing, he's got lots of men and women around who take on that role uh, of servants in his land ownership. But God forbids that land is sold in perpetuity. In fact, every 50 years, and this was a common thing throughout the ancient Near East, it was usually bound up with the death of a king, uh, but in, the, uh, in Israel, it was bound up with the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, there would be a year of Jubilee. And in that year of Jubilee, any land that was sold must go back to the original landowners, to the original family. At best, you get a 50-year lease on the land. And God forbids that anyone be taken advantage of in that. If the original owner earns enough money to buy the land back, then you have to sell it back to him. If it's only a year or two before the year of Jubilee, you can't hold out and say, look, I'll buy it off you in two years' time. No, you have to buy it and let him redeem it two years later. Because God is concerned that people have a name throughout generations and a place in the land throughout generations. So we come into this passage. As we see at the beginning of the passage, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should not I seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now your translation might say, uh, as we heard read, uh, a home that uh, you might be provided for. But that translation hides some of the Old Testament background yet again. Because God was the one who promised rest for his people in the land. And if they lived in obedience to God's law, it would go well for them. Rest in the land and go well for them. Naomi looks at her daughter-in-law and says, shouldn't we seek to do this? To find rest for you, that it may go well for you in this land. It sounds greatly honouring of God's law, doesn't it? 
sounds greatly desirous of seeing brought about what happens when God promises uh, those things for those who are obedient to him. But Naomi's solution is anything but an obedience to God's law. For those of you who have daughters, for those of you who are daughters, for those of you who have neither of those things, you can still imagine it. Uh, think of a village with no streetlights, with no traffic lights, with no lights of any kind, and tell your daughter to go find a husband by putting on, washing yourself first, that's always a good start, putting on your best perfume, make yourself smell nice, put on your best clothing, and go in the middle of the night and uncover the lower parts of a man's body. Not just his feet, that's a good euphemism that our translations have, but actually uncover everything from the waist down. And then do whatever he tells you to do. It's not a particularly safe way of courtship. In fact, it's downright dangerous and foolish, and it's risque, not just risky. Naomi is putting her daughter-in-law in a position of sexual compromised state, leaving her vulnerable to sexual assault and abuse. She's trying to find and win a husband for this woman by using her feminine allure rather than anything to do with covenant. And those ominous, ambiguous words in verse five, uh, verse 4, go and cover his feet, dead of night, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth is obedient, verse 5, all that you say I will do. But notice how Ruth subverts what her mother-in-law has commanded her to do. Look with me at verses 6 to 9. Uh, Ruth goes down to the threshing floor. She did just as her mother had commanded her. Boaz had eaten and drunk. He lay down at the end of the grain. And what does she do? She uncovers his feet and lies down. And waits. And when Boaz asks, who are you? What is her answer? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Rather than waiting in this sexual ambiguity, she claims Deuteronomy 25 instead. Perform the duty of a redeemer. Your relative is dead. I am a widow. Fulfill that duty and marry him. She uses the language that's already been used of, uh, of, she used of herself and of Boaz to her in the idea of wings being covered over, sheltered and protection. Because when she left her gods, when she left her nation, when she left her people and attached herself to Naomi, she also attached herself to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and came under the refuge of his wings. 
And Boaz repeats the same thing in chapter 2, that when she abandoned her people, forsook her people and their gods, she came and in her kindness to Naomi, she also came under the wings and refuge and protection of the God of Israel. And Ruth does exactly the same thing here. Rather than seeking other means, rather than seeking sexual means, rather than compromising herself and Boaz, she comes under the covenant. She is obedient to the law. Spread your wings. Be a protector. And be to me a kinsman redeemer. What Naomi has done is not only dishonouring to Ruth's character, but it's also dishonouring to Boaz's character. Notice how the narrative goes on. Uh, while the threshing floor, uh, euphemistically and uh, culturally, could be a place of danger, particularly for women and sexual assault, it's pretty clear that under Boaz's rules, women are not supposed to be on the threshing floor. Because again, he's concerned not just for himself, but that his people, his young men and his young women, honour God, as we saw in last week's passage. Women are not to be on the threshing floor to protect the women, but also so that the men are honouring the women. These two seek to honour God in his law. And notice what Boaz says in response, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Who is actually being kind to who here? Isn't it Boaz being kind to Ruth to redeem her, to take her on as his wife, to have children in the dead uh, brother's name, the dead relative's name? Boaz actually sees what Ruth is doing as kindness and is of a greater kindness than the first kindness she expressed. The first kindness being to forsake her people and to come with Naomi and care for Naomi in her poverty, to be with Naomi in her poverty and to provide for her by begging and gleaning the remnants, the leftovers, the dregs, the scraps. Boaz sees Ruth's act of covenant obedience, covenant fidelity, as an act of kindness. It's of great sacrifice to him. It's of potentially great cost to him. Nevertheless, he rejoices that he is being asked to do what God requires and sees it as a kindness from Ruth that he be asked to do what the law requires. Whereas Naomi is risky and risque in her approach, Boaz and Ruth are kind and express covenantal obedience and fidelity. And there's a delight in that, isn't there? There's something delightful about what goes on in this passage of this mutual kindness. 
Ruth being kind to Boaz, not compromising him sexually, but asking him to be obedient to God's word. And the kindness of Boaz not to compromise her sexually, but to be obedient to God's law. He doesn't take advantage of her in the middle of the night. He doesn't abuse her, but rather he protects her. Stay here until the morning, but leave before anyone can see and wonder whether you are a loose woman because you visited the threshing floor. But don't go home empty-handed. Let me give you all this food so that you and your mother-in-law can continue to be provided for. And let me go and sort this out this day. Because while I am a redeemer, there's a redeemer who is closer. It's mutual kindness. And it's a sacrifice that sparks joy rather than grudging or grumbling. How delightful is it when God's people rejoice that they're asked to do what God wants them to do, but doesn't begrudge it. Rather than grumbling, rather than complaining, rather than doing it unwillingly, there is a ready disposition in God's people to say, yes, thank you for asking me. I'll be glad to do it. Thank you for being kind to me, for letting me know that there is a need. Thank you for being kind to me in letting me know that there is a way in which I can love you and care for you and provide. What a delightful picture of joy, of mutual love amongst God's people. And this is what life looks like for God's people. who live life under the sun, conscious of their God. What a beautiful picture of the church it would be, would it not? For there to be such delight to be asked to do good deeds. And such delight to receive the good that others offer. What a beautiful picture it is. And in fact, in Ephesians, Paul calls it the wisdom of God. A wisdom of God displayed to all the heavenly powers and rulers and authorities. That God can bring such unity, such unity in love in Christ, as His Spirit dwells within us, and of such glory to God through this life that we live of obedience to God. Well, you see the complication take place. The Redeemer, the close Redeemer comes. He's quite willing to take the land on for a bit of time, but he's unwilling to risk. He's unwilling to risk taking on a wife and having sons in his dead relative's name. Because it is a risk. It does involve sacrifice. What happens if he only has one son or one remaining son by the time the redemption of the land happens and jubilee happens and it all goes back? In a very real way, he might risk losing his own name and his own land because he's had a son in his deceased relative's name and when it all resets, that son goes to that land and with that name rather than perpetuating his name. He refuses to accept it. But again, Boaz steps in and is willing to take that risk. Life under the sun, conscious of God. And what happens in an 
fairly oblique reference. What Boaz displays is the exact opposite of his forebear, Judah. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 with me. They say, we are witnesses of what's happening. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Twelve sons through the two of them, including Judah. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. But what happened to Judah? You're counting the family lines. Why didn't you skip from Rachel and Leah to Perez? In Genesis 38, we again see this law of, it's called Leverite marriage, played out. Judah actually had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur got married, but he died. Onan refused to perpetuate his dead brother's name, so God killed him. Tamar, the wife, was supposed to be given then to Shelah when he'd grown up, so that the names of the brothers might be perpetuated. But Judah refused to do it. Tamar then does what Naomi did, or tried to do for Ruth. Tamar prostitutes herself, captures Judah with it, has a child, in fact twins, by, um, by Judah. And Judah is caught out in his act of sexual immorality. Rather than history repeating in this passage, we see a man stand obedient to God's word and reverse everything that his forebear Judah did. Fulfills the act of the Leverite marriage, the Redeemer. Does not prostitute out, Ruth does not prostitute herself out to claim the redemption, but rather an honouring of God and His Word. Brothers and sisters, we're not under the law because we're in Jesus. We are not bound covenantally to the Old Testament because there is a new covenant and we belong to Him who has fulfilled the law. But the law existed for three reasons. The first of which was to show the sinfulness of our sin. As Romans 3 makes entirely clear, as we read the law, we must become conscious of our inability to do it. And it's not like the law was blind to that either. Deuteronomy 30, 31, Moses makes very clear. In fact, there's a song in chapter 32 to testify to this that he taught to the people through Joshua. That the law is impossible for the people of God to fulfill. We will depart from it. We'll foreshore it. As the covenant is renewed in Joshua 24, Joshua reminds them, he says, you cannot actually do this. If you come under this law, you will come under judgment. But they still submit to it anyway. Because the law doesn't just show the sinfulness of sin. It also shows the need for a saviour. 
And in Galatians chapter 4, that's exactly what Paul says, that the law was like a school teacher to teach, to teach us, to teach the Jews particularly, but also us, to teach us to look to the Christ, to look to the King who would provide salvation. The law shows the sinfulness of sin. It shows us that we need a Saviour. And praise be to God that we're on the far side of that coming of the Saviour. That we see the sinfulness of our sin. We see the sinfulness of Jesus. Uh, not the sinfulness of Jesus. This, dear, dear. Um, let's hope that the video feed didn't cut off at just that moment. Um, that we see the salvation of Jesus for our sinfulness. But there yet remains a value in the law. A dear and treasured value in the law for God's people. Because it teaches us to love. The law is wisdom. The law gives us wisdom to know how to love God and love our neighbour. In fact, isn't that the summary of the law, according to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, not some of it. All your mind, not some of it. All your soul, all your strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are serious about wanting to love each other and love our God, if you and I are devoted and want to be devoted and pursue a passion of kindness to one another, of considering one another's needs and supplying them, of delighting when people request things for us to lift their burdens, then you and I will be experts in the law. You and I will be devoted to reading that part of God's Word. Not because we're under the law anymore, but because in Jesus we have been set free to love. And love teach, and the law teaches us how to love. What a beautiful picture there is in this passage of two people, one a Gentile, one a Jew, coming under the wings of God, seeking refuge in Him, and living life under the sun, seeking to love as God taught them to love. How delightful it will be as you and I continue to pursue the freedom we have in Christ to love one another, and if we're passionate about that, if we're devoted to that, if we long for it and desire it, if we pray for it, then we will become experts in the Lord. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that this side of the cross, we know the salvation that comes in Jesus. We praise you that this side of the cross, the Lord is no longer our master, but rather your word to us, to teach us wisdom to love. Thank you for Ruth. Thank you for Boaz. The mutual kindness that they have to one another and the delight they have in doing so for one another. Father in heaven, please fill us with that same delight, that same passion of obedience to your law of love. Please, Father, stir that within us, that we will be delighted to be asked to love and that we will delight in being offered, in offering to love in kindness to one another.
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.